Welcome back, listeners, to another Ag Watchers podcast. Uh, this one, we've got a, another very special guest uh, all the way from uh, Virus Free WA. It's Liz Jackson. Um, I'm going to flick to Liz in a second and uh, get her to give you a bit of a rundown of, um, of her background, but she's a bit of a specialist in supply chain. And um, if you've been looking on the TEM website, we've had a few things go up in the last week or so centred around the supply chain, and we thought we'd uh, get someone in that knows uh, a hell of a lot more in that space than us. Um, Andrew, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Ten years in Australia. It's uh, as as most people will be very surprised to know that I've only been here ten years, and uh, most people would obviously think that I was a true blue, born and raised Aussie. But that's ten years today since I stepped foot on these hallowed shores. I didn't even have to break any laws to get here, so I guess that's a turn for the books. There you go. And welcome, welcome to you as well, Liz. Um, did you want to give us, a, a, the listeners that aren't familiar with your uh, very uh, illustrious career, did you want to give us a, a very quick uh, synopsis of, uh, of your background and, um, and your interest in the supply chain? No worries, Matt. Thanks very much indeed to you both for the uh, opportunity to join in today in this uh, exciting chat. So uh, my area of interest is um, agri-food supply chain systems. Um, I've been working in this area for or a good 20 years now, I suppose, um, from my um my days in undergraduate school, um, having you know done some work in um, the Western Australian grain industry, and then decided that uh, I needed to do something a little bit more with my life. So I went and um, did some research, um, PhD research in the Australian wool industry, looking at um, uh, adoption and diffusion of um, issues in the Australian wool industry before going to the UK, where I only um, lasted ten years. Andrew, so I um, I jumped ship uh, before you jumped ship in Australia. Yeah, but you you did by the looks of your CV. You spent that time in Newcastle, so can't can't you you did pretty well to do ten years in Newcastle. So why am I? <laughs> Oh, hey. uh, the, the, well, oh, I, I actually, actually, I only did six years in Newcastle in the northeast of glorious England, not so sunny glorious England, where I, uh, where I, I ran the agribusiness program um, at the university up there before um, moving uh, down to um, the Royal Veterinary College just outside of London, um, where I was responsible for researching um, livestock supply chains there. We'll, global livestock supply chains there and also teaching the um the, the vet students that um try, trying to get them to understand that they will actually be as veterinary professionals actually working in the business um as well as treating animals so um yeah i wasn't the most popular of lecturers there um but um yeah it was good fun and um doing some research in um into uh, livestock supply chains and um, adoption of innovations in the uk africa southeast asia lots of really interesting stuff so and here i am back at home at um curtin university where it is actually sunny so um yeah and and pretty much covid free so happy days so great experience before before, you go before we go on to uh supply chains and we've had a bit of back and forth on twitter the, the three of us what is the uh can you give us a bit more detail on your phd what was what was that specifically on i looked at um the reasons why 
uh, West Australian wool growers are essentially so wedded to the auction system for selling their wool and why they don't, why, why they're so reluctant to um, give away the auction system to um, other risk management selling strategies that are actually more helpful for the supply chain. Um, the, the problem that I was investigating is that the auction system doesn't allow um, any sort of supply, any, any sort of supply signals to um, to manufacturers or processors, um, and with the you know quantities of wool getting you know more and more and more all the time, these wool processors with their advanced technology are needing to know about qualities and quantities that are coming through the system, and with auction you just don't get that. Um, it's based, you know, auction is. I hate to say it, but it's pretty much a dumping ground where, you know, people can put out there whatever they've got. Um, and that's not really helpful for the supply chain and, and, and knowledge and information that flows through about these uh, valuable products. So that's what um, I was researching. But from a very human perspective, so what are the, what are the attitudes and values and and normal ways of working and living that are stopping this, um, stopping change and stopping um, producers essentially doing what their customers want, not their consumers, what their customers want. Mm, that was one of the discussions. I think you and I met, Liz, was it at a Red Meat conference in Canberra? Oh, um, yes. And that was where we had a discussion there because um, at the time I was quite heavily involved in the Ryman platform there, which was... You know, one of the abilities to risk manage your wool product, and I guess from all of the Australian-based um, risk management tools in agriculture, the rhyme and wool is probably one of the more um, more popular ones in terms of the, the, the amount of trade that goes on it. Um, but um, even still, with that being the most popular, it's, it only accounts for something like about 3% of the clip in terms of what gets hedged. And um, I think we had that discussion around just that reluctance uh, for, 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 for producers to engage. Do you, do, you, do you want to shed any light on why you think it's such a, a difficult uh, concept to, to attract people to those type of risk management tools within Australia when you've got such a, a, a proactive uh, approach, say, in somewhere like North America? Oh, and, and this, is, this is what I find so fascinating about this topic is that the, it, it seems that the business case is clear. You know, use forward contracts, use these risk management um, tools for selling your wool, wheat, meat, whatever, um, because it helps out everybody. But for some reason, there is this adoption problem. For some reason, people won't, won't use it. They won't use um, beef, beef futures either. Mm. And what I found was that it's not, it's not a business case problem. It's a social problem because we're very, very, very connected to what is normal. And in the wool industry, the auction system is normal. It's been normal for a very, very, very long time. And I found that it actually takes quite a lot of courage um, for, um, for, for people to, to not use the auction system anymore because of funny things like, uh, well, back then, I'm, I'm actually not sure if it's still the case now, but you know, people who achieved the highest price at, at the wool auction, they had their names published in the, in the rural press. This mm. is a big thing. This yeah. is a big thing to have your name published in the, in the rural press. Um, and when you, you don't use the auction system, it doesn't happen. The auction system, believe it or not, is a social, you know, it's a mm. social phenomenon. You know, particularly, you know, sale yards. 
you know, you go to the sale yards, you see your mates, you, you engage with people. And that's a really hard thing to give away, mm. um, particularly when you're in, you know, in an isolated um, profession like farming. Yeah. Do you think also um, how much of it would be, um, I guess, the educational or the, or the understanding aspect of exactly how these contracts operate? Do you think there's a bit of a still a barrier there uh, in that space that, that potentially people are just not uh, maybe as sophisticated as what, as what say, people like us believe them to be? Maybe is, is, that, an, is that a barrier? It's, this is really hard for me to, this is a really hard question for me to answer because people who are, so brokers who sell these products, they say it's really easy and you don't need an education. You don't need to be particularly clever to take out a Ford contract or, you know, sell or take out a futures contract. I mean, I've never done it personally, um, but I believe that it's a perfectly simple um, and highly trustworthy, highly reliable way of doing business. Um, I so so. It it are people you know are, are farmers and and producers um, scared of what's intellectually involved, or are they just scared of the change? Mm. And I would say that it's the latter. Yeah, yeah, potentially. I mean, and in a market as traditional as the wool space, I guess it's um, maybe if uh, if the. I mean, certainly within the the grain space, um, not so much with the a, ASX contract, Andrew, but um, the uh, you know CBOT type CME contracts. Uh, you know, there's enough um, activity in that from an Australian perspective, but it, you know we don't seem to see the pickup in the ASX contracts, do we, for grains? But I think, look, it would be really good if somebody did a PhD or did some studies in a similar area because uh, there has been some research, but not looking at the behavioral side of things. So it would be good if somebody was doing that and and had a survey come out in the next 12 months that had to be filled in. Sorry, there's a real gap for that, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. That, that yeah is... In all sorts of different um, agricultural, well, I'll say commodities in this, in this sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's a massive gap. And, um, you know, for, for my, my research in the wool industry to be forwarded <coughs> on, because don't forget that was a good, that was more than 10 years ago. So the time is right. Nothing's really changed in 10 years in the wool industry, has it really? No, not oh, from, from the, at least from the marketing point of view of, how it's sold there's not a huge change but i think even even if you look at the grain side of things matt and uh, like you said there's there's obviously probably a, f- a lot more volume is hedged using derivatives but it's still minuscule compared to what you would see in for instance a u.s corn farmer or cotton or cotton well cotton thing. australia is a big one yeah yeah, well, we got we got a bit hijacked though because we did say at the start here we're going to talk supply chain and we've, all we've talked so far is about risk management, which is uh, you know, not quite in that space. I, I guess Liz, we, we should cover off on so the most recent discussion you and I have been having via um, social media and, and otherwise has just been around this whole um, this whole stuff we've been publishing on just recently on uh, TEM, uh, just regarding the. Um, the producer share of, uh, of the retail spend, um, particularly in the red meat space. So we're looking at um, uh, over the last two decades, how um, if you compare sale yard land prices uh, to, to sale yard, uh, to retail land prices and cattle, cattle uh, sale yard prices to retail beef prices, we've seen for, for sheep producers in particular that, that they've been able to capture, I think it's something like, you know, if you look back at the late nineties, it was about 40% 
of the uh, retail dollar was being captured by the, the land producer. Um, and it's now nudging up towards 65% um, in recent times with the, with the growth of uh, sale yard uh, prices um, and, and retail not keeping up from that perspective in the lamb space. But, uh, and in the beef space, you're looking at something like uh, you know, it's, most of the last um, two decades, it's been hovering between 30 to 40%. Um, it did kick up to touch, I think, 50% back when we saw those cattle prices rallying in uh, 2016 after the break of the drought but it's kind of gone back to sub 40, 40% again now in, in recent years. Um, and so we were discussing around why would it be the case that, um, that A, you know, we've seen that growth in, in, in um, particularly lamb producers being able to capture some of this, um, this retail spend. And you had some thoughts on it, Liz, that it was, um, that it was supply chain type driven um, to a degree. Did you want to elaborate there on what your, what your thinking was behind that? Yeah, I was. I've, I've actually been giving this an, an, an enormous amount of thought because I was dead chuffed with the um, with the data that um, TEM that you guys put up. I thought that was really, really, really insightful, um, as did others um, who are part of the gang. And uh, one of the things um, that I've I've been giving a bit of thought to, um, in addition to what other people have been um, talking about, um, is that. <sighs> As uh, through the sheep, th- through the sheep industry, you know the, the whole supply chain. Uh, you know, are are sheep producers blessed with their agility? Um, you know, they 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 do incur you know far more you know operational costs than cattle producers because you know after all, sheep need to be shorn, um, they need to be crutched, of course, which cattle don't need. Um, but you know that because they're inherently smaller beasts, they, you know, we can, we can pick and choose um, a great deal, you know, what, what we do with them and how, and, and, you know, like I said, in, in our discussions, you know, animals, animals per truck, animals per, per, per processing hour, um, you know, and even, you know, packaging. Um, they, these are, these are all issues that have really arisen um, in terms of efficiency over the last 10 years. And what's been really interesting is the, the work that the middle part of the supply chain, so the processes, have been doing to improve, improve the situation. And while it's fantastic that farmers' share of value has been, has been increasing, you know, happy days. I mean, what, what more could we ask for? You know the processes have you know they've contributed an enormous amount to this success. Um, you know through and one of the one of the bits that we've been talking about you know is the um, introduction of DEXA technology. I mean this is ju- this is just fantastic. Um, and you know any anything that we can do to um, improve that middle part of the supply chain and m- improve these efficiencies, transport efficiencies, um, you know information technology efficiencies, has got to be bringing um, bringing those costs down so that there's a you know there's a bigger gap into the profit. Sorry if I was a little bit long winded there. I do tend to get a little bit excited about these no, no, topics. No, no, that, that was good. And I think um, mentioning the, the Dexa too is, is one of the things that actually I. You know, obviously, I was aware of that was going on in the background, but I wasn't really um, on top of exactly where the progress was right now. So I actually 
borrowed from the vast knowledge of one Richard Norton, who obviously um, now now with the elders group, but um, you know the time spent at MLA, he was heavily involved in that whole um, process, and obviously MLA and AMPC and, and AMEC and others is still now carrying that forward. But um, he was the one that pointed me across to to you know dig around in there, um, and that's certainly I, 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 like the discussion you and I've been having is that. Um, definitely there's some supply chain benefits that have been accruing over the last bit and, and DEX is one of them. Um, but if you look at the numbers where you know, I spoke to someone um, in, in, in the know just yesterday and they were saying that from a throughput perspective, the so it's the scanning, but it's also the robotic cutting that's the real key. Um, and if you take into account how much, say, throughput approximately is going through um, the scanning and the cutting, for, for lamb, it's about... Oh, just short of 20%. I think he said it's around 18% of throughput nationally, whereas for beef cattle, it's, um, it's about 10%. So there is a difference there, and that could account for some of that supply chain efficiencies accruing more to the lamb side. But my perspective was too, Liz, that um, was that it's not just a story about that supply chain. It's also a story about the growth in, in the lamb export markets. Yep. And that's where I saw that underpinning of those sale yard prices. I can't but help think that um, it's got to be also that growth. And if you look at um, the difference between cattle and, and lamb in terms of, you know, you've got cattle markets where for the last decade it's been 65% uh, of our production has been exported up to, you know, as high as 75% in more recent years. But when you look at the lamb market, um, if you go back to the late 90s, you've got about 25% of production back then was being exported of lamb. I'm not talking mutton, I'm just talking lamb here. Um, whereas nowadays we're nearly nudging 60% of our lamb product is being exported and mutton something like 95%. It's ridiculous, you know. Is that, um, does the the changing nature of um, sheep production systems across Australia, do you think that um, that might contribute to this? So, you know, for many, many, many years, since well, essentially day one, week one um, of Australia's um, white settlement, um, you know, it's been a wool producing nation, um, but ever so slowly since, you know, since we had the, um, you know, the bottom out of the reserve price scheme in the wool industry and all this sort of thing, the, the shift has been, you know, from, from wool to meat. Um, I know certainly in Western Australia, I, of course, I can't speak for the Eastern States, but, um, yeah, we've seen incredible, um, forward movement um with the sheep meat industry in australia when it was so 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 traditionally wool definitely i think that's a fantastic point actually and um and that's got to also play into it i'm just thinking too as well that you know with that transition um even though we've had a, a you know a since the 90s and a decreasing flock size as well if you look at something like lamb you know the lamb crop each year uh, if you go back, say, even just, um, you know, a decade or so ago, you're looking at a lamb, a lamb crop each year of around 15 million head of lamb. And, and now we're, you know, nudging 22 million head. And that's with a low, you know, low, low flock. So, you know, if, if we get the flock up, you can get lamb, you know, higher up into the mid 25 million kind of head level. Um, so you've got this big growth in supply. Um, even and even accounting for say someone like New Zealand as a big competitor overseas uh, in the export space, their supply has been dwindling, but it's not been dwindling too rapidly. So they're still putting out pretty productive kind of lamb crops um, on a smaller flock as well. Um, you know, you've got that scenario where you've got this increasing supply, but in in you've still got prices steadily going up for the last you know decade or more. 
And I think what's really still, I can't get away from the fact that that increase in price in the face of the increase in supply has got to be demand driven. Um, you know, so I think for my mind, the bigger part of the story is, is, you know, the export explanation. And, and part of it is what you're saying there as well about the transition from wool to wool to meat. And then also you've got the additional of, of all this um, supply chain benefit. So it, one of the things while I was that I was thinking when I was listening to you very carefully, Matt, just then, um, was, oh my God, it's completely gone from my mind now. Um, I was listening so intensely that um, it's gone. Um, it's, um, it comes back. I was thinking it comes back to what we were talking about. I remember now. Sorry, um, about the issue with adoption and change. So. We've got a re- we've got really strong land prices at the moment, so don't change anything because everything's good. But then when the bottom drops out, we can't change anything because we're too lean. We yeah, don't have yeah, any yeah. money. We don't have any yeah. money to research. We don't have any money to explore. We don't have any money to take risks. So again, here's another you know, for anybody who might want to do a PhD um, in, you know, human behaviours and risk management um, on farm, this, you know, this, here's another example of human decision-making um, that's holding, that, that could be um, holding up innovation. Great point. Slightly changing tack and, and hopefully Andrew might have something to say in this one as well, but just it, it was a discussion I had with the, with the Western District wool producer probably a fortnight ago now with this wool price crashing. And I know we're switching uh, commodities, but I think it matters. Um, you know, for many, for many years when we had um, wool prices, you know, going higher and higher and higher and, and, and wool was becoming back to be the darling of, uh, of the agricultural space, certainly in some areas, um, there was, you know, one of this, this Western District farmer was, was quite concerned. He's a young fellow, but he's very keen on, on sheep and wool. He also does a bit of cattle, but he's, you know, he's, he's got a soft spot, I think, for wool. And he was concerned that, um, that he wasn't seeing the uptake in, uh, in people coming back to wool and back to merinos, even with prices, you know, over $20 a kilo clean. Um, and, and just, he was lamenting just the other week now with, with prices. And I just saw this week, we've dropped below $10 for the EMI, um, you know, the lowest price, I think, in eight years. Um, if you can't get people to wool when it's um, doing as good as it was a few years back, how the hell are we going to get people into merinos now? Do you have any thoughts there around that whole scenario from putting your wool hat back on and then maybe Andrew could probably come in with his chime in with his thoughts on it? Sorry, I've, I think I've misinterpreted the, 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 the question. So, uh, sorry, I thought you were asking the question to, to, to Andrew. Sorry, could you just repeat the question? Sorry. I'm just saying, like, with, with what happened with wool when it was doing so well, we couldn't really attract many back to it. You know, what, where do we sit now with the – and like what you are saying before, what you were saying about, um, you know, when, when times are good, people go, don't touch it, it's not broken. When, when times are bad, then you're too scared to do anything. Is that where wool is facing now? We've got a situation where we couldn't attract people back into wool when it was doing really great, and now we're staring down the barrel of, you know, an EMI below $10. How are we going to now get people back into wool uh, after this? I just think the, the wool industry at the moment is – is just so plagued with so many um, pressures, you know, unless, you know, unless you can't do anything else. Actually, no, that's a terrible thing to say. Um, uh, But, you know, how could you possibly entertain the idea of getting back into Merinos when we've got this, the issue about um, mulesing? Mm. Um, You know, when it is just, it is just such a difficult 
um, issue to have to contend with, um, you know, you know, the, the amount of people, like, for example, in Western Australia, which is so traditionally um, dominated by sheep, who um, have gone, have abandoned um, sheep altogether from their properties and have gone into cattle um, for, for all sorts of non-financial reasons. Um, you know, they, you know, sheep don't um, have as many problems with wild dogs. You know, you don't. You know, you you don't have to shear cattle. You don't have to um um um. Crutching oh my God, crutching. crutching thank yeah. you. Sorry, um, it's gone for a second there. You know, you don't. You know, you, they're just they're just easier. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, all, know, all the move, all the move into cropping as well, which I mean, Andrew would know about that space across many parts of the country where we're seeing that that transition particularly for the younger farmers um, away from a mixed enterprise and away, certainly away from wool and uh, potentially, you know, not even, you know, bypassing livestock totally and just say, I'm just going to crop hundred yeah. percent. Look, I, I think Matt, it's, it's probably too complex to cover off today, but I think when you, when you look at it, there is this sort of straight line between the drop of sheep numbers and the increase in and cropping acreages, and that is seen in every single state where you've got any reasonable volume of, of grains. And so we've been seeing that since the 1990s. And so the industry hasn't able to sort of encourage people back. And look, two years ago, EMI was strong as it had been in a long time. And you couldn't encourage people to go back into wool in any sort of major sort of volumes but then like today i was looking at you know a few tweets uh, between peter walker and callum blake and they were talking about it and then a guy called sam west who i think all of them are in western australia saying that they're sort of at least Callum was saying that it is a case of uh, wool as a byproduct of meat production and and it's really a case of uh, like that, that it is a case of well, do they do they grow it for the wool or do they grow it for the the meat and get a check on the side for the wool, if mm. at all, which which is probably the case in the UK, isn't it? Mm. Like wool's a byproduct mm. in the UK, obviously not anyone different, here. different kind of wool though, really. Yeah, well, it's so. it's carpet wool, mm. uh, but we haven't tried to sort of continue that industry. Mm. I think the other thing to keep in mind in this um, discussion is the importance of sheep in the um, mixed, well, in, in the in the farming system, in the Australian mm. farming system. Uh, you know, sheep sheep are important. Um, you know, particularly when we've got you know issues like um, you know herbicide resistance and that sort of thing. Um, I I can't see sheep disappearing from our system. Yeah. For a long, long, long time, we're going to have to have some massive changes um, in innovations and technologies before we sh before we see sheep. And whether wool is the byproduct or meat is the byproduct, they're here to stay. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think when when you look at it as well, like if you look at the the sort of the income from sheep, it's very, very static. Like it's it plods along pretty well through the drought years and through the the good years, it doesn't have the highs, but it also doesn't have the lows. So in grains, you have higher highs, but you've got much lower lows on grains, whereas sheep are quite a good, consistent performer. And I saw some charts from 
ORM, this is probably three or four years ago for from the Mali. And it basically just showed you that, you know, they were just a consistent performer over time. And I think that is, you know, that's where there's the space for them. And, and, and the reality is a lot of land which is in cropping potentially shouldn't be in cropping and should be in sheep. A lot of that sort of really sort of marginal land. And that's where it really should be a case of flitting back and forth between cropping and, and livestock. So just to um, throw the cat amongst the pigeons again and put you on the spot, Liz, you're a West Australian and just mentioning about that whole scenario with sheep and the, the difficulties that sheep industry is facing for a whole range of different aspects, whether it's, um, you know, the wool space or whatever. But um, how, do you, how do you see the whole dynamic with this? We entered the third stage now of a, of a live sheep export moratorium. Obviously not so much of a concern for the eastern players. They do have some that go, but certainly um, nowhere near the levels uh, that, that get turned off into LiveX in the east than what we see in the west. Um, how's, how's things going now in the west with this third moratorium, um, you know, from, from a perspective of uh, the West Australian producer? Is it, um, my, my suggestion was in an article I put out not long ago was that three months is too long. Uh, the moratorium and thought maybe they could cut it back to one month and that would probably be manageable. Um, is that another nail in the coffin for the for the West Australian sheep producer, this um, this long three month, and not just for the producer, I guess for the whole supply chain over there that, uh, you know, got shearing teams through the winter that don't have the work they would have had if they were preparing sheep for the live X ships. You know, you've got transport operators, you've got, um, mm. you know, diesel mechanics in regional towns that are, you know, um, engineers that are, would have been making stuff, uh, you know, and having orders, but, you know, the, the whole thing grinds to a halt sometimes in that, that period is what we're being told through the supply chain. Have you got any flavour to add to that as a West Australian and as a bit of an expert? So the, 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 the number one issue with live export is... To, the, to its length and breadth and full stop animal welfare. That's, that's the be all and end all of everything. Um, the, the most important thing is to, um, for our world-class sheep to get to our customers and their consumers in the best possible state. Um, and, you know, send, sending them from um, Western Australia to the Middle East, from, you know, winter conditions. Um, I'll say winter conditions, Andrew, in inverted commas, um, Australian winter, um, to the Middle East summer um, has been, you know, there is evidence there, you know, there is an evidence base to suggest that it, it doesn't work. And indeed, the quality of the animals that get to the Middle East is, um, it decreases. So in terms of, in terms of being able to continually provide our customers with top quality animals that arrive on spec um, is, is the number one thing. So how this, how this plays out with the moratorium, um, <clears throat> We've got so many. We've. It just seems that every year we've just got more and more and more stakeholders who are asking questions for right or wrong reasons, um, asking more and more questions um, about this industry. Um, there is. It is a very valuable market for Australia as a whole. Um, whether you're talking about sheep or cattle, um, it is a very very valuable market. Um, we are providing trade to the world 
and it's in in my opinion it it has it has to go on but we have to keep the, the the welfare of those animals as high as possible not only because it's the right thing to do but it's it's a quality issue as well um we, we've got to get those animals to our customers on spec mm. Mm. oh look i don't disagree there and, and, and animal welfare is it has to be the key the key driver initially but from from just from my take of the certainly the data aspect of it and i, I use uh, whether it's rightly or wrongly, I use um, mortality rates as a as a proxy for welfare. It's not the the best um, indicator, of course, but it's one of the ones that we can use where the data is available over the long term. And with some of the changes to practices on ship, uh, you know, changes to density, changes to um, you know the, the management of the animal um, in terms of what you know leaving the is it the hocks they leave on nowadays and um, to reduce cut and, and this and that, um, they're getting uh, nowadays far less mortalities than what they were in comparable times through the season, um, such that that ship that went out in uh, June that was allowed to go, the LQ80, um, I think the mortality on that was 0.08% for that particular one. Um, so obviously that was in what would have been the moratorium had they have not got you know the permission to go and had a very, very low mortality. Um, so then by... by, by um, you know, kind of correlation, say, better welfare as well, uh, far better welfare. If you look across the whole of the season, those mortality figures are reduced for the last few years since the changes have been made. So that's why I kind of ask the question, is the three months too long? Can we just, you know, go a moratorium through August, which is traditionally the worst of the months in terms of risk uh, for heat? Um, you know, and that's, that was my question, basically, is I, I agree we've got to have some level of a moratorium. Um, but for the sake of, you know, the damage it does to the supply chain, um, uh, you know, the ability for the West Australian farmer to have um, options in terms of, you know, uh, what they can do in terms of turn off through, through um, you know, through the season. Um, I just think that, you know, we could, we could potentially look to reduce that uh, moratorium down. I think I agree. You know, the, the, the more, the, the longer we can keep market access open, in, in terms of, you know, um, financial gain and um, trade gains, you know, cust you know, customer trust, reliability, all these sorts of things, the better. Um, I think the, the, what we've been through has been necessary, but as, as somebody who's, who's interested in animal welfare and using data to make evidence-based decisions, there are a lot of people in this world who know an enormous amount about long range forecasting of weather. Um, you know, that, that would have to be one of the most highly developed um, forecasting systems and most mature forecasting systems um, we have. So why aren't we using those systems, those forecasting systems in terms of temperature, humidity, all of these factors that are so, so, so important for animal welfare to make better decisions um, about this, this moratorium and when ships can go. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe I'm talking into the future a little bit too far. Maybe we're not there yet. Um, maybe the trust isn't there yet um, from, you know, from people who are far more passionate about animal welfare than I am. But, um, you know, it's, why not? Mm. Mm. No, it's a fair point. I'll, I'll, we'll switch it. I'm going to do another change attack and put you on. This one more curly question before I let you off the hook and, uh, and maybe call it an evening. Um, 
transparency in the supply chain for red meat processing. That's another one that kind of pops up. And it's one of the curious ones, um, certainly at a time like now with the processor margin model that we produce at TEM, we see that at this point in time, um, it looks as though pr pr processors are having a, a bit of a hard time of it. Um, but, you know, if we go back a year or so prior, um, you know, through the drought and through the 1415 um, turn off as well, um, you know, they were getting really um, good good margins going through and it was the farmer that was having a hard time. And there's there's always this angst in the supply chain that I can see between farmers being not so trusting of what goes on at the processes and processes sometimes being a bit secretive about their, their actions. And I get I get the reasons why, you know, it's a, it's a competitive space and they've got to protect their, um, you know, their commercial and confidence data. But, um, you know, do you see... Um, a way forward and particularly I'm thinking down that transparency path and whether we go down the path of the US where it gets um, it gets kind of legislated or do you think that the industry um, can work together you know whether and, and this is one thing that frustrates me whether it's LiveX or processing or the farm that we're all part of the red meat sector we shouldn't be fighting each other we should be uh, working together because if one part of the supply chain is not um, successful, then the whole supply chain is under threat. Um, do you want to give us your thoughts on what that is? Because, like I said at the start, you're an expert in this space, and I think Andrew, it's fair to say, this is one of the best conversations we've had so far. On the, having someone so knowledgeable to, that we can fire all these questions. Of what, what do you got to say about that transparency space, Liz? How much time have I got, man? <laughs> Seriously, uh, mate, a, a I could brief... just oh, in, in three three words or less. Um, Nothing. <laughs> I could. I could only. I could only possibly dedicate three hours to this. No, no, kidding, kidding, kidding. Um, the, no. The thing is that um, one of the one of the big lessons I've been. Um, I've got lots of um, food supply chain enthusiast friends um, around the world, and you know we've been comparing notes um, through COVID nineteen. And one of the things that we are all seeing, no matter where you are in the world, the supply chain, the food supply, agri food supply chains that have survived and have prospered, have been the ones that that there is a clear line of sight between the producer and the consumer because this is about trust. And these are the supply chains that have prospered during this very, very, very difficult time when we've had all, all sorts of um, problems, whether it be, you know, um, fights in supermarkets in our privileged society or where um, food security and food safety are genuine day-to-day -day problems, um, you know, in, in worlds that, we don't we don't know about you know thank god um so this you know this this um integrity this objective this objective measurement this um this transparency this is again this is not only the right thing to do but it makes food security sense um it it it, it enables um very 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 strong messages to go to go back to uh, producers about what what their customers and indeed consumers want from them. Um, of course, changing um, production strategies for livestock is a little bit trickier and a little bit more long term than grain production strategies. Um, but f for me, the, the objective measurement of um, you know objective carcass measurement or 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 objective measurement of any sort um, can only be a good thing. Um, these these the, this middle part of the supply chain, as I I mentioned a little while ago, um, 
it is at they are doing the the, the processes the jbs's of the world the vnv walsh's of the world they are doing extraordinary work um, to improve the quality and indeed the transparency of what is happening in our red meat supply chain and uh, they should be chaired through the system um, because of because of the progress that that is being made but i i don 't see it happening and you know that I have been given a real fright from covid nineteen about the closures of abattoirs. And the reason that I've, I've been given this fright is because I live in a society where I can't, um, I, I, I can't, I don't have access to, to, to meat without processes. Mm. I don't know, I don't have the facilities in the flat that I live in to process a sheep. I just don't. I don't even actually have. I, I don't even own a deep freeze, yeah, so I but, can't. But, but you could go on YouTube and work out how to do it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, don't I don't know if it's think, against the strata rules, though. <laughs> I don't think the council would probably cart off the skin and offal. That's the offals for breakfast, isn't it? You can send, send, <laughs> the, send the offals. I, 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 I say before. Um, I knew. I knew we could get black pudding into this conversation. <laughs> You've been well, sitting well, there thinking about that for, for for half an hour, haven't you? Well, when it comes to um, sheep offal, that's the that's the national dish of Scotland, the haggis. So um, he, he wouldn't let that one go. Um, but look, at least I couldn't have said that. No, that was a, a very eloquent um, you know, answer, and I think I couldn't have said it better. I, I particularly loved the expression of the clear sight from the from the producer all the way to the consumer as a as a description of what needs to be there. Um, yeah, very well done. I think Andrew, we need to get academics on the uh, podcast more regularly because they... we've got we've got to, we've got to be careful though, Matt, because it shows us up as being the hicks that we are. You know, <laughs> well, but Liz isn't just an academic; she's a she's a person that enjoys a laugh and uh, is great to talk to. But um, we've probably borrowed way too much of your time. We'll have to get you back, uh, I think, Liz, at another time because um, clearly. Uh, the knowledge you've got across a whole range of aspects is uh, is something that I think you know more people could um, could uh, sit from the well of your uh, of your experience, Liz, and um, and and maybe uh, you know get a bit of insights as well. Certainly, it's been uh, enlightening for us, um, Andrew. Have you got anything to add, or should we, should no, we hear the music? I think it's probably it will just be a matter of time before the next sheep meat supply chain issue. It seems to we've had a couple of them in recent years, and let's be honest, they're still current as we speak, uh, because we don't know what's going to happen over the next month or two. And the sheep supply chain could be very different in the spring flush compared to previous ones. No, that's true. That's very true. Um, before, before we actually hit the music, Liz, you've heard the podcast a few times. I've asked a few of our guests on um, what their thought is about the uh, style of the music uh, intro and outro. Um, are you a fan, Liz, or, or should we be changing it to something else? Well, I'm I'm always a big fan of elevator music for these sorts of um, for these sorts of events. Um, I like I, I really do enjoy something that's a little bit um, you know um, calming um, because you know we we generate so much meaty pardon the pun um, <laughs> inspiring enthusiastic discussion. Um, so you know we've got to we've just got to ease back with something a little bit. A little bit relaxing. So you're saying you don't like it then? <laughs> that's what I. That was her, <laughs> that's, that's, an, that's an academic way of saying you guys are a pack of idiots. You've chosen crappy music. 
Anyway, Andrew, you want to... You... I, think I, I want to make another point as well. You, you sent Matt a, a paper the other day, and, and, and Matt's comments were, I don't understand these big words. <laughs> <laughs> and I've studied economics. It was, a bit of a, it, was a bit, it was a bit dry for my liking, but it was obviously uh, written by someone that knows what they're talking about. It's, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't in the style of the things that we write. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was, no did, you, did you notice an absence of black pudding? <laughs> yeah, but it was a lot of, lot of, lot of big words. I, I knew what some of those words meant. So mm. I felt smart. I have to say that paper uh, was pretty heavy going. Um, but on the grand scale of things in AgEcon, um, it was probably one of the lighter reads I've ever come across. Um, but, you know, horses for courses. It was a bit dry for me, Liz. I, I like a bit of when I'm being, uh, when I'm being schooled and, and, and taught, a, taught something, I like to be entertained at the same time. And, um, certainly, that's what I hope we've done today is we've been able to entertain and uh, teach people. But, and, um, like, you're a great supporter of ours, Liz. We're very appreciative of that. And um, all I can say is thanks for coming on. And I think we'll get you back on at another stage if you're prepared to bear with us uh, again at a later stage when there's something else to talk about. Um, but, yeah, I really appreciate coming, you coming on and, and having a chat to us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming very, on, Liz. Thanks very much indeed, guys, for the opportunity. It's been great fun. Um, very happy to join again, just as long as we don't have to talk about black pudding. That's the line I draw in the sand because that stuff is gross. It's, it's, part, oh, it's part of the supply chain and it's also part of the uh, 2030 um, you know, carbon sustainability scheme of recycling all the parts of the animal. And it's a superfood. It's a superfood. Super <laughs> Well, thanks very much for coming along, Liz, and we'll close it off there.